This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. Welcome to our Behind the Markets podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. Alongside Wharton Frank Professor Jeremy Siegel, we tackle the latest market trends every week on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM, Channel 132. Our guest consists of experts like the world's leading authority on long-term economic growth, Bob Gordon. We will continue to see jobs created rather than destroyed. Former chair of the Federal Reserve, Janet Yellen. I mean, I don't think either of us ever expected that we would live through a financial crisis. Or even the head of the Digital Indian Foundation, Arvind Gupta. The reason that people are talking about India is massive digitization and financial inclusion that we have done over the last couple of years. Enjoy this week's show. Welcome to Behind the Markets here in Business Radio, powered by the Warren School. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz, Global Head of Research at Wisdom Tree. My co-host is Warren Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, author of Stocks for the Long Run and the Future for Investors. Please note, I'm registered representative of Foresight Fund Services. Professor Siegel is a senior advisor to Wisdom Tree. Our d- discussion is not tied to an offer or sale of investment products, and Wisdom Tree may hold securities discussed in this show. The views of our guests are their own and not those of Wisdom Tree affiliates. We are wrapping up some of earnings season. Today's show, we're going to be talking with a professor who says uh, some of the earnings aren't really, or, or really losses aren't really losses. Uh, we're going to talk to him about some of the distortions in accounting and uh, be a really interesting conversation. Um, but first, Professor Siegel, we're going to get your take on the markets. What is, uh, what's your take? Well, you know, we have the battle of the two Vs, as I say. Uh, the virus, for which all news is bad, and the vaccines, for which all news is good. <laughs> and uh, that's sort of a standoff. So uh, in that, uh, you know, the vaccine news gets really good, and then the reopening stocks do better. Uh, the, the virus gets worse, and the stay-at-home stocks do better, and now that that is going to you know definitely go back and forth uh, over the next uh, couple of weeks. Um, uh, of course, we we heard today about uh, uh, the you know the application for EUA on on the Pfizer, and uh, I'm still very very optimistic on that rollout, uh, at least getting some some important shots and inoculations in by the year end, and then. Uh, you know, c- clearly uh, we're going to have the, uh, the Moderna uh, come right on and behind that. Uh, I would like to comment on a couple things that uh, are hitting the headlines now. The so-called Fed Treasury rift uh, with uh, Mnuchin calling back some of the funds on uh, uh, the facilities. Let me, let me say my personal feeling this is totally overblown. Um, uh, these were facilities that were not really used. I think Mnuchin might want to bring it back because he wants to restart negotiations and try to convince Republican senators, we've got this money, here it is, back, and uh, with, let's use it now when the virus is uh, exploding. And, and personally, that is the best use of it right now. PPP and uh, unemployment support right now is much more important than anything uh, you know, that the Fed could have on, on these, uh, you know, uh, uh, not really used facilities. I mean, they used at the beginning a bit, and that, that's outstanding. But, uh, I, I, you know, my, my feeling is is that uh, a lot has been, uh, too much has been made of, of this rift. Um, uh, uh, you know, it all can be reauthorized under um, uh, Biden, if need be. I don't think it will need be, or, you know, that the, and the Fed can mitigate through other other uh, uh, measures. So do not worry about that. Second thing, of course, is we have Judy uh, Shelton um, uh, turned down by the Senate the first time, might come back again. I've been on the air to say I am not a fan of hers. Uh, I think she lives in the past in the gold standard, which is not appropriate in modern world economies. However, if, if, it, if she does go through, and by the way, the betting odds are, <laughs> I think they're five to one now against her. Um, but, uh, the, uh, you know, it wouldn't be a disaster. She'd be a lone voice and drowned out by all the others. Um, you know, I, I did uh, say that we should get some fresh voices in there, but not for the gold standard. Um, <laughs> you know, much more in terms of, um, of uh, uh, maybe a little more supply-side economics in, in, in some of the discussion. But nonetheless... I do want to, you know, say that I don't. It's not important one way or the other. My preference is they do turn her down, 
um, and uh, we get a more conventional person next year. Uh, in terms of that, let's just see how, uh, you, know, we're, you know, Thanksgiving's coming up. Will the virus cases keep on going up, as many expect, or will they level off? We do see a leveling off in Europe. Uh, their surge seemed to be a week or two before. Let's hope we can actually uh, get the leveling off that Europe now has. But we do have a unique holiday on Thanksgiving that they don't. And um, so uh, a lot of that is up in the air. As you sort of look ahead for next year, how do you think about these those two Vs playing out between the types of stocks that are going to do well next year? I mean, how do you think, you know, the market's obviously very forward-looking, and they sort of, but they moved a lot on just the vaccine news. Yeah, I mean, how well, do the you vaccine think about news is so much battle? above expectations. Uh, I mean, I, I, I'm, you know, I'm fully confident that by, by next year we will get it and we're going to get it. You know, you know, everyone I believe that wants to, I, I believe that everyone in the risk categories, including those over 65, will really have access to vaccinating by March 31st. By June 30th, the end of the second quarter, everyone will have access. And I think people will take it. And with that degree of 95% efficacy, we don't need 100% of the people actually do take it. Um, and that, redu- that will reduce basically the, the you know, this virus to background noise in in the whole health uh, system. We will also have other vaccines, and we'll have other therapeutics, by the way, that are 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 uh, can be brought online. Um, even perhaps an oral pill that could be administered on first symptoms, rather than uh, you know the the current uh, infusion that's that's uh, you know been given uh, emergency use uh, authorization by Eli Lilly. So we got more therapeutics coming, but most importantly, the the, the vaccines. Um, and uh, so next year, the, in answering your question, it is the reopening stocks. I think it is the, the so-called value stocks, although they're, you know, you have, you have to be careful about you know, what classification. There's the energies, there's, there's the beaten down ones, and then there's those that are tied to the economy. But I think that uh, the search for yield uh, and the, the feeling that we're going to get back to normal economy will put a lid on technology and will allow an outperformance of this, uh, you know, most uh, neglected group over uh, the last uh, year or so. We're going to talk, be talking about earnings, accounting for earnings. Um, before I get to our guests, maybe, uh, you know, I know you focus a lot on some of the, the traditional measures of earnings also. Any commentary to you on how you think, um, you know, when people look at valuations, what they're thinking about earnings, any big picture commentary from you on some of the ways people look at yeah, earnings? Yeah, you know, just as a general, uh, I, you know, I, I think gap earnings are not representative of the true earnings power, and they've gotten worse over years by the way some of the regulations have changed. Um, that said, I mean, it is true that the re- regular operating earnings do allow for some shenanigans in in there, uh, but I think they're vastly preferable to what we call gap earnings, which have, you know, been distorted many years. I also want to warn people that, that you know, this is a bad year. A lot of firms in this fourth, coming in this fourth quarter, so we're going to get them in January, um, are going to throw the kitchen sink in. Oh, this is a bad year. Let's Let's expense this, this expense, this expense, this. So you're going to get some expenses in that, especially on the gap earning side. Um, and that will clear the boards for a huge rebound uh, in earnings, in, in my estimation, in, in 2021. Very good, Professor. Thanks for giving some commentary to start the show. Thank you. I'll talk to you next week. You're listening to Behind the Markets on SiriusXM 132. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. I'd like to introduce today's guest, Baruch Lev, who's the Phillips Barty's Professor of Accounting and Finance at New York University's Stern School of Business. We also have one of my senior analysts, Matt Wagner, uh, who's also registered representative of Foresight Fund Services, who's done a lot of studying on Professor Lev's books and accounting, joining for the discussion. Uh, Professor Lev, welcome to Behind the Markets. Thank you very much. Glad to be here. Maybe uh, you've written some really interesting books um, and sort of have a lot of thoughts on the accounting, maybe the end of accounting, as you've called it in some ways. Uh, maybe uh, when, when you talk about some of the big losses in some of these high-flying tech stocks today, uh, maybe Tesla is an example. But how, how do you think when people look at earnings or losses, they're getting the wrong picture? First of all, let me say that uh, the book that you mentioned, End of Accounting, was written with a co-author, Professor Feng Gu, who had uh, a major contribution to the book. But coming directly to your question, uh, I've observed long ago that accounting 
and the product of accounting financial reporting are quickly becoming uh, irrelevant uh, for investors. And I got an early confirmation of this when we had the first draft of the book, the end of accounting, we sent it to eight, nine very knowledgeable people to get uh, comments on. One of them was a CEO of a large company, and he, he called me a couple of weeks later and he said, Baruch, I'm going to disappoint you. Uh, my heart sank. Uh, he's a very blunt person. I was convinced that he was saying it's bullshit. Uh, he said, we know this. We, he meant CEOs, we know that uh, financial reports are largely uh, irrelevant. And the proof of this is that we all publish uh, huge amounts of what's called non-gap information. Yeah. And uh, practically all S&P companies are now publishing non-gap earnings. These are different versions of the earnings. But much more important, they provide fundamental information, like all pharmaceutical companies provide the product pipeline, and uh, things like this. So uh, it, it's clear that accounting and financial reporting are becoming less and less uh, relevant. And uh, I, think, I think coming to your question about uh, so many uh, companies reporting large losses, uh, it's really important to, uh, to understand what's going on here. So uh, in the good old days, and these are just 25, 30 years ago, there was a clear separation uh, between investment and expenses. Investments uh, were things that generated uh, cash flows in the future, uh, and at that time, investments were all physical investments, were buildings and structures and airplanes, uh, things like this. Expenses were payment for past services like uh, interest and uh, returns. So the, the income statement really reflected performance of companies. It had the complete matching between revenues and true expenses. Uh, about 25 years ago, the whole structure of corporations and the way they did business changed dramatically from physical assets to intangible assets, to R&D, to IT, to brands, to human resources, unique processes, and so on and so on. And uh, today, in corporate investment, total corporate investment in those intangibles is the astounding figure of 2.5 trillion, with a T, trillion dollars. Investments in physical assets is half of this. Now, the problem with accounting is that they take practically all these intangible investments and expense them in the income statement and you get an incredible mismatch between revenues and expenses that create future revenues. So you have, for example, R&D as a current expense, but it has nothing to do with current year or current quarter revenues. It has to do with future revenues. So the resulting income number is a completely distorted uh, uh, number and you can get, just get an idea of this. In, in the last boom year, 2019, last year, a full 45% of all companies reported uh, annual losses. 70% of all high-tech and pharma-based companies reported losses. So how can it be that in a boom year, more than half the public companies report losses. It just doesn't make any, any sense. And that's, that's basically a demonstration of the irrelevance of this number of, that you know, everyone refers to it as the bottom line, the most important, uh, and that's uh, earnings. Yeah. 
Um, Prof Professor Lev, this is Matt here. Uh, there's great insights. I, I wanted to tie back two things that you said, which are really critical and you talk about a lot in your book, is the, the conservatism principle and the matching principle. Uh, and, and excuse me if I got that wrong, really my accounting background doesn't go beyond much of uh, accounting 101, but the concepts that you really that really stuck with me from the book were your your Pfizer examples. So you talked about how Pfizer invested in you know a very topical company today invested decades ago in perhaps a development of a vaccine, uh, a drug, developed a patent, and and the conservative principle years ago would have said expense that immediately, don't recognize it on the balance sheet. And now today, uh, perhaps not recognizing it years ago, your profitability maybe looks too high. Um, do you think you could speak to the conservatism principle maybe being uh, an, an aggressive principle today? Yeah, it, it, it depends on where you are in, in the investment in intangibles. So if you are on the upside, if you are like most uh, successful firms, increasing investment in intangibles, your, both your earnings and the balance sheet will be understated. You have huge expenses. I mentioned the total number of $2.5 trillion dollars you have huge expenses that are burdening the income statement uh, today and basically will bear fruit only in the future. But you don't have those investments on the, on the balance sheet. So assets of companies, I mean, it's, it's, it's ludicrous. Uh, you mentioned Pfizer. Uh, everyone knows that the, the, the real assets of Pfizer are the patents that they have on extremely successful drugs, uh, very successful uh, labor force, uh, marketing forces. All those huge assets that create the value of Pfizer are not on the balance sheet. Uh, they were expensed uh, years ago. On the other hand, uh, that's what you mentioned, conservatism, uh, companies that are on the downward spiral of investment in intangibles, and there are many, many of uh, those, they have inflated earnings. They now have their revenues from past investments, but the current investments are relatively small. So the situation is so confused that even sophisticated investors cannot get a handle on it. Some, some earnings are inflated, some earnings are deflated, some book values are inflated, some book values are deflated. And uh, I, I, I think the end result is uh, what you see that uh, most managed money, not all managed money, but most managed money is really losing because they use highly deficient information. We're talking with Professor Baruch Lev of NYU University about his work on intangibles and other measures of of distortion in earnings and valuation here. It's sort of really interesting on, you know, if, 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 if it's now really, really clear, I think more and more evidence are talking about intangibles, We've been why we were excited to have you on the show. Do you, do you see them actually trying to make changes to GAP to start reflecting this? Do you see earnings providers. I mean, we do look a lot at different earnings measures, and I don't see really a lot of the standard calculations trying to provide these adjustments that you're talking about. I mean, how, where do you see people, they can go for this kind of information? Uh, first of all, let's say that uh, they shouldn't go to the, to the financial reports. They shouldn't go to the balance sheet. They shouldn't go to the income statement uh, because they are not going to make any, any serious changes in the foreseeable future. The, the U.S. standard-setting body, that's, that's the body that uh, set accounting regulation, the Financial Accounting Standards Board, uh, had twice in the last 15 years, had twice an intangible project on their agenda, meaning that they are going to uh, move to this project and then change accounting uh, accordingly, and that's mainly because of pressure of uh, investors. And twice they deleted this project. It's, it's unprecedented. The project was deleted twice from the, from the agenda. So I don't see uh, very, very quick uh, uh, changes here to make accounting reports 
really fitting the 21st century. Accounting today is rooted in early 20th century in the industrial era. So going back to Pfizer that you mentioned, if you look at the balance sheet, you see cash, you see accounts receivable, you see a few office buildings that they have there. I mean, these are completely irrelevant uh, uh, numbers for any investors, but you don't see the value of their patents, you don't see the brands, you don't see anything uh, there. And uh, I don't think we'll see uh, quick changes. We can talk later uh, about the reasons for uh, that. Took me took me a long time to understand. But you asked me where investors should go for more relevant information, and I find most useful the quarterly conference calls of uh, companies. Uh, practically every company today, U.S. companies, and many, many around the world, by the way, it's not just a U.S. phenomenon, have conference uh, uh, calls. Uh, they are well uh, advertised in advance. Everyone can join the call. Not everyone can raise questions, but, but everyone can join the calls. Usually, they provide, with the calls, they provide a deck, sometimes 35, 40 pages deck, like, like a PowerPoint uh, presentation, which is very, very uh, useful. And uh, you don't have to listen to the call in real time. You can go to the website of the company and they, uh, a week later, two, two days later, and you'll get uh, the call. The call usually starts with a, a relatively brief presentation by management of uh, the last quarter, the last year. And then the most interesting part of the call comes, and that's an exchange. This is a Q&A with, uh, with financial analysts. These are experts that uh, follow the companies, and lots of lots of useful information is revealed in those calls. I'll give you an example. There is a huge uh, group of industries which people call subscription-based companies. These are all 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 the listeners now are customers of subscription-based companies. These are all telecom companies and internet uh, services uh, providers, media, even insurance companies, uh, that you pay monthly, quarterly subscription for. Basically, all these companies provide detailed information in the conference calls about the most important part of their business, and that's how many new customers or uh, were added during the quarter. What is the total number of customers? What are the customer acquisition costs? Meaning how much did we pay in promotion, in freebies to get the customers? And most important is the churn rate. How many customers uh, do we lose, disconnect uh, in, in a month? Uh, this is not accounting information. This is not required information, but after years of pressure for, from investors, companies provide this information. You can, from this information, you can easily compute the most important value for these companies, which is the customer value, which of course is not on the balance sheet. And if you want me, I can go to details of how you make the, the computations. Uh, so that's the information that really creates value. That's the information that affects the future rather than this, this largely meaningless number, which is called uh, earnings. No, there's a lot of issues you brought up there that are that are interesting to explore upon. I mean, you, if we if we come back to why you know people can't get this information that readily available, um, maybe briefly like describe uh, why you think the ingrained interests are preventing that, whether it's the auditors, the accountants, the companies, 
and then we'll come back to really the proper valuation in the second half of the show. Uh, very briefly, uh, there are basically two, two standard setting bodies uh, uh, in the world. Standard setting meaning uh, making regulations for uh, what appears on balance sheet, what appears in income statement, what shouldn't appear on those. In the United States, it's Financial Accounting Standards Board. For all other countries, it's the International Accounting Standards Board. Increasingly, uh, the regulations uh, merge. Very few people heard about these uh, organizations, but they wield huge amount of power. They basically determine the financial report of companies, public companies, all over the world. So they, they are basically legislatures in this case, but uh, no one elected these people. They elect themselves. And uh, in contrast to uh, practically all regulation, there is no public debate about the adequacy of accounting information. There is, as you all know, there is a huge, lively debate about environmental regulations and food and drugs regulations, internet regulations, whatever. And as a result, there are constantly modifications and uh, changes. Uh, but uh, when was the last time you heard a public debate about whether financial reports provide information that investors need? Never. So these bodies are basically immune to criticism. And because they are immune to criticism, they are frozen. They don't make the, the, the uh, necessary changes. And they are not under any pressure really to do it because the two groups took me years to understand this thing. The two groups, which are, which are the real influencers on these bodies of standard setting, corporate managers and accountants, auditors, uh, are really not clamoring for, for any change. Corporate managers, as I mentioned before, are providing uh, non-accounting uh, information. Uh, it's complete chaos. Uh, each one of them is doing it in a different way, so it's not, it's not really very useful. But no one of, no, no executive is really taking on the, the uh, accounting standards uh, setting bodies, there's probably there's not much for them uh, to, to do this battle for. And accountants, accountants basically benefit from this increasing complexity, obscurity of uh, financial information. Annual reports now, normal annual reports, regular annual reports uh, stretch to, to about 200, 250 pages. No one understands this thing except uh, accounting, and uh, they benefit from this. It's, it's like tax lawyers. I, I never heard about a tax lawyer who is clamoring for simplification of the, of the uh, tax rules, and the same thing uh, with accounting. So th there is no pressure on these bodies to modernize hmm to provide information that is, is really needed. And as a result, uh, the financial reports are, are really not very meaningful. Uh, Professor Lev, you mentioned that, uh, you know, for a long time, a lot of investors, of course, were focused on, on earnings. You could see a lot of uh, you know, market values tracking those earnings, but you've been advocating more recently that there's so many estimates involved in, in earnings and to your point becoming less useful that do you think really getting down to uh, what's in a lot of ways stripped down of all the different complexity of earnings, just looking at cash flows may be even uh, better for investors. Can you speak to you know, use, looking at cash flows versus earnings? Yeah, that's, uh, you know, I talked, about, I talked about intangibles, but that's not the only problem with accounting. Uh, another problem is that the one that you just mentioned, uh, the, the proliferation of estimates. Uh, when non-accountants uh, hear about accounting, uh, they, they all know that accounting is very boring. But they, they think that at least accounting is factual. 
after all, accounting uh, comes from counting. You count, you count facts, you count physical things, you count money, you count pieces of uh, inventory. But those who know accounting uh, 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 really know that uh, there's nothing further from the truth than fact. Accounting is not factual. Practically every item on the income statement of companies and most items on the balance sheet of companies are based on managerial estimates. So uh, depreciation, amortization, uh, pension expenses, uh, even accounts receivable, how much money customers owe you on the balance sheet is based on an estimate. It's, accounts receivable is presented after a deduction of an allowance for bad debt, which is, which is an estimate. And these estimates proliferate. Practically all new regulations, and by new I mean the last, the last 20 years, increase significantly the number of estimates in accounting. So what you get in, 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 the, in the earnings number is a conglomeration of all the estimates in revenues, in expenses, and it's a very, very imprecise number. Uh, I'm not, I'm not uh, usually spreading conspiracy theories. I don't think that most managers manipulate financial reports. Most CEOs are very honest, hardworking people, and CFOs are too. But some do manipulate. And when you deal with estimate, you, you estimates, you can manipulate with immunity because no one can tell you that an estimate was wrong. You'll always say that, you know, by the time I made the estimate, it was based on my best information. So studies have shown that the more estimates in financial report, increasingly uh, the reports are less and less uh, uh, relevant more and more uncertain, more and more volatile, and uh, so on. So I would, I would uh, use cash flows rather than earnings. At least cash flows are, are not subject to so many estimates like earnings. With uh, one big change, uh, I will add to cash flows investment in long-term assets, mainly investment in, uh, in intangibles. So cash flows are reported after, uh, of course, payments for R&D and for IT and all of these. Uh, these are not really expenses, and this should not affect, uh, uh, they, they, they technically affect cash flows, but they should not affect the numbers that uh, you should use. So adjusted cash flows, and I, we go into details of how to compute this thing in the book that you mentioned, end of accounting, but adjusted cash flows plus the investment in, uh, in uh, intangibles uh, will give you a much more reliable number than earnings. And we actually, in the book, we actually prove it empirically that it's, uh, it's a more reliable number. This has been a really interesting conversation. We're going to be talking, continuing with the for the hour with Baruch Lev, a professor of accounting and finance at New York Stern School of Business. I'm Jeremy Schwartz. You have Matt Wagner, Professor Lev. We were just drilling into, you know, some of the issues on how to get better measures of of cash flows, earnings. Uh, I think it ties into one of the papers you wrote called "Explaining the Recent Failure of Value Investing." Uh, Matt and I are sort of value trained under Professor Siegel, and uh, you know, I think we're we're very much interested in all these earnings adjustments you're talking about. But talk about why you think value has gone wrong, where it goes astray, and, and how to correct for this. Well, uh, it's a fact that it has gone yeah. wrong uh, because uh, value investing just uh, didn't perform at least for the last uh, 12 years. Lots of value funds are uh, closing. I don't, I don't want to offend any of your uh, of the listeners here who are, who are managing value funds, but, but that's just a fact. It's a huge crisis. 
Uh, I got attracted to this issue uh, two years ago. I, I gave a talk to a, a very large uh, investment uh, fund, and uh, uh, we had dinner with the, the CEO and the chief uh, investment officer, and uh, over dinner they were lamenting about uh, value investing, and uh, they told me that they are going to close five value funds that they were running with, with millions and millions of uh, investors because uh, they just don't perform. Uh, but they told this, this happened to be on the, on the same day that uh, Paul Romer from NYU got Nobel Prize in economics. So the CEO told me, uh, jokingly, of course, he said, Baruch, if you will find out what happened to value investing, why it doesn't perform, you will be the next uh, to get the Nobel Prize. Uh, I still didn't get the Nobel Prize, but I, I would very much like to get it at some point. Uh, the, the problem with value investing is the following. First of all, a, a word about value investing. Maybe some of the listeners are not so familiar with it. Uh, it's a very old idea, usually attributed to uh, Ben Graham, who was a professor of uh, finance. And the idea is both brilliant and uh, simple. The idea is that you invest, if you invest in cheap companies, cheap by some measure like, like low uh, market value to the book value to the accounting value of the company or low price to earnings ratio. If you invest in those cheap stocks, uh, you will make money over time. Why? Because many of those cheap stocks at any point in time really don't belong to this lowly group. They are good companies, but somehow investors lost patience with them they had a bad quarterly report, uh, they lost a major customer. So investors overreacted, dumped the stock, they became cheap stocks. If you invest in, in those stocks, over time the value will increase and you will make money. Uh, later, later uh, when short selling became available, people apply the same logic to stocks at the, at the top, very expensive stocks. They were called growth stocks or glamour stocks, high market to book, high price to earnings. And the idea was again, the same idea, that those that the stocks at some point in time really don't belong there. They were really hyped, investors got enamored with them. Over time, they'll fall in value. So if you invest in the cheap and sell short the expensive, you'll make lots of money. And that's, that's really the, the raising debt behind uh, value investing. This constant bouncing up of value stock, down of cheap stocks, create gains from value investing. Uh, for many years, uh, yeah, statisticians, statisticians call this phenomena mean reversion. Yeah. Those at the top revert down to the mean. Those at the bottom revert up to the mean. So mean reversion is a very uh, common phenomenon. Uh, with a co-author of mine, Anup Trivastava, we really spent lots of time, after I was, I was promised the Nobel Prize by the CEO of this fund company, we invested lots of time. And among our main findings was that this mean reversion, this bouncing up of value, bouncing down of, of growth stocks, slowed down significantly over time particularly after the two, uh, 2000s. So you have much less of the bouncing of the increase of value and decrease of, of growth. And because of that, value investing is just not performing. 
uh, we showed in, our, in, in a paper we published, we showed that it really stopped uh, performing in the early 90s, but it's, uh, everyone is familiar with the last 12 years. Uh, it's it's, uh, it's uh, not working. And it's not, it's not, that's what most people ask me. I, I unfortunately think that it's not a temporary phenomenon. It's a very long-term structural phenomenon. I recently read a paper uh, on uh, documenting by, by well-known uh, economists, documenting that, that displacement, it's the same thing that I called before bouncing, that this, the displacements of stock at the top decreased significantly, decreased, went down significantly from 2000. And the reason for this, again, is what we mentioned several times uh, earlier, and that's huge intangible investments. Companies, leading companies at the top, and I'm not speaking just about Apple and Google and Facebook. I'm speaking about hundreds and hundreds of uh, uh, companies that invest heavily in patents, in brands, in unique processes like, like, the, like the recommendation algorithm of Netflix and Amazon that give them essentially a protection from competition over time. So these companies that many of them used to be at the top temporarily for a year or two and then uh, went down, they stay at the top for a long period of time. And those at the bottom, those with low valuation, just don't have the means to invest in intangibles, to invest in R&D. Uh, the 30% the, the smallest companies in the United States invest on average $20 million in R&D. What can you do with $20 million? It's, it's basically a nothing compared to 10 times investment just in R&D by those at the top. So those at the bottom are trapped. They cannot get themselves out of, of uh, uh, the bottom. I mean, a few do, but most cannot. And you get this structure of really rigidity, both at the bottom and at uh, the top that makes value investing really uh, completely unprofitable, just not working. It's interesting. We're talking with Baruch Lev of NYU University. Uh, you know, it, it, Professor, is, is when you th a lot of the, the value people will talk about extremes in valuation today. Uh, I was on a – or I listened to a panel with, with uh, Professor Siegel and Cliff Asnes from EQR, Laconashock. Uh, on the extremes in some of the valuations, and today, you know, and 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 they're saying it's more than the tech sector; it's going beyond. Um, and you know, I, 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 well, I assume that on their traditional measures, you're going to say that they're not accounting for intangibles. And then once you do, these valuation extremes are nowhere near the diff, you know, as as wide as they're suggesting. Um, but any commentary on how you see valuations on on these parts of the market, and and maybe intangible, high intangible investment stocks versus non. Uh, you mean you mean in valuations that investors can do? Well, the, you know, people are saying that the the growth, you know, the, the growth stocks today, which are the ones who are making the most intangible investments, have you know the their valuation on a traditional PE measure are at re are sort of record levels back to like the two thousand period, and so you know, but uh, I guess in terms of, I guess if you've seen any of the intangible adjusted valuations and how you would say they compare? I, I, I don't think that they are similar to what happened in the late 90s and the early 2000s, the birth of the tech bubble. Uh, uh, the, uh, the, all, all, all the firms that went down in the birth of the tech bubble didn't really have any solid business model. Many of them didn't even have, have uh, uh, a business model at, at all. Uh, those that uh, 
rich in intangibles today have very solid business models. Many of them uh, are becoming industry standards, which means that it's almost impossible to dethrone them, to throw them, uh, to throw them out. These are companies with, with actual cash flows, not imaginary things like, like uh, hits or clicks or uh, things like this. So I, I really don't see any similarity with uh, the late 90s and early uh, 2000. Uh, there may be, of course, decreases in value of those growth companies, uh, but, but I, I don't see any collapse because they, they have real business models. Most of them have, most of them have business models which is built on what's called scalability. If you are an airline, you can sell a seat on an airplane for a flight only to one person. If you have a rental property, you can rent an office only to one customer uh, per year. But if you sell drugs, if you sell software, if you sell music, if you sell stream content, you can sell the same products to millions of people at the same time. This, this is a, an enormous scalability. And most of these companies uh, uh, create this capability and protect this capability. It's very important to protect it from uh, competition. Google, a couple of years ago, uh, bought millions of old patents from uh, Motorola. And the reason why they bought it is to create a moat of patents around their own so that others will not be able to come and claim that uh, uh, they stole their uh, technology. So heavy investment protection of, of this investment create real business models with real, uh, real performance. Uh, so I, I, I don't see uh, a case in which there will be a complete collapse of, of uh, companies rich in uh, intangibles. Uh, prices down, perhaps, uh, but, but, but not, definitely not a collapse like in 2000. Right, right. So you did uh, in your paper mention the characteristics of some of the uh, value bucket that you think has the best prospects of mean reverting, getting out of that value category and uh, having its, its multiples uh, expand. So what, what were the characteristics that you kind of mentioned? Uh, you did mention size, investments of intangibles, but uh, any other characteristics that you think are, are uh, more favorable for the value yeah, we really wanted to, to understand uh, uh, those, those that move out of uh, value and down of, of uh, growth. Uh, what are the main, the main drivers uh, of those? So we use, we use a statistical technique that is, is uh, uh, designed uh, for that. And by far, the main difference between, uh, between those who somehow escape the trap and those who remain are uh, uh, investment in, uh, in uh, intangibles, investment, particularly investment in uh, technology. Uh, to some extent, sometimes uh, mergers and uh, acquisitions. Uh, help them do it, but uh, that's, the, that's the main thing, that investment in resources that create value. Right, and do you, do you think that the accounting standards that we've been talking about this whole time where R&D gets immediately expensed and can't be seen on the balance sheet, do you think that has implications for reducing uh, investment? Uh, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. Uh, mainly, uh, perhaps, 
perhaps for uh, very small new companies that because of the expensing of uh, intangibles, they show uh, they show a streak of losses. Maybe they have some difficulties raising money. But by and large, uh, companies find resources for uh, those, those uh, heavy intangible uh, uh, investment, despite the fact that they are expensed uh, in, the, in the income statement. So for investors, for investment decisions, investors who want to rely on financial information to make investment, investment decisions, particularly earnings, uh, the accounting treatment is, is really extremely detrimental. For, for companies themselves, uh, they, manage, they manage to find resources to do it, venture capital, and then, of course, uh, uh, IPOs. Uh, I don't think that the accounting system has a major uh, effect on, on the corporate sector. Professor Weber, on in, we're down to on our... investors, yes, but not so much on the corporate sector. We're, we're down to our final few minutes, Professor Webb. As, as you think about how people can take all this conversation and, and try to incorporate into their, their strategies, processes, um, any sort of final concluding, you know, big picture thoughts of what people should be doing to get the, the best measures of valuations across companies? Uh, I would say that uh, uh, there, there, are, there are some simple things that investors uh, can do. For example, if you get an earnings report from a, a company, uh, I, would, I would adjust the report by just adding to earnings, uh, in most cases losses really, negative earnings, adding to earnings, uh, investments in, uh, in the long term, investments like uh, R&D and IT. The problem is that in most cases, the accounting is so primitive that in most cases, those investments are not revealed. R&D is separately uh, reported in the financial report, but the rest you somehow have to get it out of sales, general administrative expenses, here again, listening to, listening to conference calls will add a lot because sometimes managers are talking about their investment in technology, their investment in, uh, in uh, software, and uh, so on and so on. So adjusting the income number, I, I just did a, a very quick, dirty uh, exercise for Tesla for 2019, Tesla reported a loss of $775 million when I added uh, R&D and one-third of... we got to stop, Professor. Thank you so much. It's been a great discussion. I'm Behind the Markets. I'm Jeremy Schwartz. Have a great week, everybody. Thanks for listening to the Behind the Markets podcast. If you want to learn more about WisdomTree, visit wisdomtree.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at Jeremy D. Schwartz. I'd like to thank Patty Hall for producing our live program on SiriusXM channel 132 and our podcast producer, Daniel Bruno. Join us next week for another edition of the show. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.